0: In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com/people today.
1: Why don't more infant formula companies use organic grass-fed whole milk instead of skim? Why don't more infant formula companies use the latest breast milk science? Why don't more infant formula companies run their own clinical trials? You have an Airbnb. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at Airbnb.com/slash host.
2: Hello, I'm Natasha Livingston, Royal Correspondent for the Mail on Sunday. Welcome to The Crown. Fact or fiction? This is the fourth of our special podcasts where we tell you about the events that would be essential to include in a future series of The Crown. And we take a guess at how they'd be represented. As always, I'm joined by my co-host, royal biographer and columnist, Robert Hardman.
3: Hello, Natasha.
2: Before we begin, this is the last of our special episodes and we're going to be doing some more where we look back at previous episodes and previous series of The Crown. We'll be selecting our favourite episodes from series one to series five and giving it the Fact or Fiction Treatment.
3: Yes, that's right, Natasha. We are going to pick and choose our way through and you're very welcome to join us. Whether we decide to uh, look back at Claire Foy and Winston Churchill, whether we want those Princess Margaret moments, whether we want the Queen and Margaret Thatcher, uh, we are going to thoroughly enjoy pressing the rewind button and we hope you do too. That's coming next week. But for now, we continue with our special episode four. You won't have seen it because it doesn't exist, but we're going to imagine how it would look like. We are taking the crown on to 2018.
2: This was a special relationship
0: people wanted to shout about. A Hollywood star about to become a
2: fully-fledged royal breaking boundaries and expectations American contingency. We're in the house of Meghan! it's 2018 and a royal wedding is upon us we've already talked about william and kate's wedding at westminster abbey but this time around we're in windsor for the wedding of prince harry and Meghan markle now robert don't tell me were you there
3: I was there, actually, Natasha. I wasn't this time. Unlike the wedding of William and Catherine, I wasn't sitting there with the family in the church. But I was inside the castle. I was part of the BBC commentary team. And it was a fabulous day. It was sunny. It was May. Windsor was just looking glorious. Britain had been through a pretty grim few years. We'd had the whole Brexit saga. We'd had endless political shenanigans. Everyone was in a bit of a strop. And then out of nowhere came this fabulous event. And we all went a little bit doolally.
2: Now, the wedding was at St. George's Chapel, which is a beautiful setting, but slightly smaller venue than Westminster Abbey. And there were only around 600 guests. Is that right?
3: That's right. It is a smaller setting, but it does have an intimacy. It has a great atmosphere atmosphere. It's it's there inside Windsor Castle. It was actually built by Edward III. It's all built around St. George. It's why St. George is the patron saint of England. I mean, it's full of history. If you go underneath the floorboards, not that they have floorboards, but underneath the marble slabs, you'll find all sorts of monarchs. You'll find Charles I reunited with his head, Henry VIII. It's all there. It's the family chapel. What better place? And it really did look fantastic for Harry his wedding.
2: I sadly wasn't there, but I've seen the footage and it was a beautiful day, really warm. Everybody looked stunning and it was still pretty star studded guest wise.
3: Yes. On the sort of groom side, you had a sort of full turnout of the House of Windsor, as you might expect. But on the bride side, this was a transatlantic royal wedding. Obviously, a huge amount of attention to be paid to the fact that her father wasn't turning up. We might go into that in a minute. Why was Thomas Markle not there? But among those who were there were. Uh, Hollywood A-listers like George Clooney. One guest who certainly caught the attention was the famous American interviewer, Oprah Winfrey. It's like, oh, we didn't know she was a friend of the couple. That would be explained uh, a little later on in a famous interview. But anyway, for now, Oprah was there. She was in very much in in a star position right up at the front.
2: Mm. And why wasn't it in Westminster Abbey? Even though this is a wonderful venue, it it is smaller. So why did that happen?
3: There was a, a general desire for something. I mean, a bit different. I mean, why would you want to try and do William and Kate Mark II? You probably wouldn't. Royal weddings over the years have tended to either be in Westminster Abbey or, in the case of Charles and Diana, to be in St. Paul's Cathedral. But historically, an awful lot of them were at St. George's Chapel, Windsor. The wedding of the Earl and Countess of Wessex, Prince Edward and his bride, Sophie Rhys-Jones, that really set the trend. Everybody loved it. And the key thing about it, it's not just the, the chapel, but as you come out of the chapel, you're on the family plot. So you could just walk up to the castle for the reception. There's no need for buses and transport and extra security and all that stuff you're inside the castle walls and there's really no better place actually for a wedding reception than Windsor Castle so it might be a slightly smaller church space but boy has it got some great state apartments
2: so thinking about our imaginary episode of the crown even though it was a beautiful venue and they likely chose it just to do something a little bit different do you think the crown would have made it out like this was a kind of snub or an inferior wedding
3: I think the Crown would certainly want to show both Harry and Meghan wanting a different wedding. How are we going to be different from William and Catherine? And indeed, how are we going to be different from the sort of the royal norm? I think the Crown would have made great play of the fact that... The father of the bride wasn't there. With days to go, Thomas Markle pulled out. He was suffering from heart problems. There have been issues to do with the media out in Mexico where he lived. It was an extraordinary backdrop to a royal wedding. As I have said in previous episodes, all royal weddings are preceded by... A drama, a crisis of some sort. That happened when Charles married Camilla and there were issues to do with the licensing arrangements. It happened when Charles married Diana and the Spanish royal family boycotted the entire event It happened when William married Catherine because of who was and wasn't invited. These things happened, but it had never been quite as pronounced as a no-show by the father of the bride. However, the Prince of Wales stepped into the breach um, with days to go. He had said to uh, Meghan, well, will you allow me to do you the honour of walking you up the aisle? I think he was possibly a little surprised by her reply, which I later discovered was, could we meet halfway? But nonetheless, that's what happened. So Meghan had a very dramatic solo entrance, uh, which we possibly all remember if we saw it, to beautiful music as the sun shone behind her. And then halfway up St. George's Chapel, there was the Prince of Wales waiting to escort her on the final leg. There'd been an interesting alteration to the chapel. It's always normally the way with St. George's Chapel that the chairs in the nave face inwards, so everyone is sort of, as it were, facing the aisle. Meghan had wanted a, a more sort of theatrical look, so all the chairs were turned so that they actually faced towards the front as they would in a theatre or a cinema.
2: It's quite an interesting decision, particularly with everything we know that has happened since. Uh, Do you think that this was a sign of a couple that were maybe going to do things a little bit differently and different to royal protocol?
3: Yes. But let's remember, here is someone who is a professional actress who has had considerable success on screen, who has a, a very good understanding of how things look. And she's a 21st century bride. I think she's probably thinking, well, OK, I'll I'll go with this sort of traditional walk up the aisle on the arm of a man thing. But I want to make my own entrance first. So she comes into St. George's Chapel on her own. And that's a statement. And then they're halfway up the aisle. There's the Prince of Wales. And he escorts her the rest of the way.
2: I think the crown would also focus on the international attention that this wedding attracted. There were up to a billion viewers worldwide, including 29.2 million viewers in America. And part of that was obviously due to the fact, as you said, she's an American actress. She was very successful, known mainly for the TV legal series Suits. And of course, she was a woman of colour. And that attracted a lot of interest from people who felt a sort of newfound affinity with the royal family. Yeah,
3: there's no question the fact that here was, as she described herself, a biracial royal bride marrying into the royal family, I think it was incredibly significant. I think there was no question that if you met the crowds out in uh, Windsor Great Park and on the streets of Windsor, as I did, it was a very diverse crowd because I think everybody felt they had a sort of stake in this wedding. And that was part of its magic, part of its appeal.
1: It's a royal wedding. and We want to soak up the atmosphere, get the feel, maybe see the Queen, Harry, Meghan. I'm probably Australia's last moniker, so I'm here. It was, a, it was a
3: no-brainer. We've got to be here.
2: She's a woman of colour. It's very important to us yeah, she's to American. identify she's... with,
1: and she's American and very relatable. and We just wanted to come to support her. And it's a new day. It represents change.
2: And there were quite a few factors that made it an atypical wedding.
3: Yeah, here we had uh, the first royal wedding to feature a gospel choir who were great. The Kingdom Choir were a fabulous addition. They were actually the idea of the Prince of Wales. Harry's father had suggested them, and they thought, yep, let's go with that. And there was also the sermon delivered by Bishop Michael Curry from America, who was very much of the evangelical American tradition. It was fabulous, a sort of passionate uh, dispatch from the pulpit. Clearly, not paying the slightest bit of attention to the clock. Most preachers in royal chapels know, particularly when the Duke of Edinburgh was around, you had a sort of seven-minute maximum. By the time Bishop Michael had sort of hit 10, then 12, then 14 minutes, all the royal family were kind of looking at each other. And there was a certain degree of sort of mirth, because everybody knew this is just breaking all the rules, and there's nothing anybody could do about it. And actually, it was a great sermon. All I can remember about it was just, love will conquer all. Great.
2: I could say that in a second. <laughs>
3: yeah, but it went on and it went on and everybody thoroughly enjoyed it, except probably the uh, people charged with timekeeping and the, the military and all that stuff, because um, it certainly threw their plans into disarray.
2: One thing that did follow, I guess, in the tradition set by Kate and Will's wedding was a fabulous aft party. And some of the details are quite funny. Uh, the actor James Corden arrived dressed as Henry VIII, <laughs> which, <laughs> which just seems totally random.
3: Didn't he make- make Make a joke along the lines of, well, it is a royal wedding. I didn't know what to wear. Yeah, he said,
2: I had no idea what to wear to a royal wedding. I mean, anything but a Henry VIII costume? I don't know. And uh, there were actors, uh, Idris Elba DJing and George Clooney was doling out shots of his own brand of tequila. So yeah, they had a great time and danced the night away just as uh, Kate and Wills did.
3: Yeah, it was a new and different form of royal wedding in some regards, but in others, it followed the blueprint of what came before. It was an enormous global event.
1: You can see that Windsor is still living off the glow of the last royal wedding. Just like Harry and Meghan, Princess Eugenie chosen Windsor, the Queen's favourite residence for her big day. Walk to the front of Windsor Castle and there was no sign of a big event being imminent. The preparation second time round is distinctly more low key.
3: I told lots of people I was coming down for this event and they said "Who's getting married. What royal wedding? They didn't know about it.
1: The costs of security and cleaning up have been criticised. She is ninth in line to the throne.
2: So it's safe to say the Crown could have had a lot of fun with Prince Harry and Meghan Markle's wedding. But another wedding that they could have an equal amount of fun with would be that of Princess Eugenie, who is, of course, Prince Andrew's daughter and her husband, Jack Brooksbank.
3: Yeah, five months after the great union of Harry and Meghan, the royal family and the world, or certainly Britain, are once again gathered around Windsor Castle for another royal wedding. And it is another grandchild of the Queen. It's Princess Eugenie, as you say, younger daughter of Prince Andrew, Duke of York, and his estranged wife, Duchess of York. And in many ways, it is a very similar wedding because... And I think the crown would have enormous fun with this. Prince Andrew was throwing his weight around. He was demanding, if you like, parity. He was saying, well, you know, Harry's a grandchild of the Queen. He gets this big wedding. Uh, Eugenie is a grandchild of the Queen. We would like similar treatment. We want the full works. There's a slight problem in that in terms of public perception, Harry is the son of the future king. Eugenie is the younger daughter of someone who isn't the future king. So it's just, you know, it it is slightly different. Everybody had huge regard for Eugenie. I mean, those two girls, and I've interviewed them both, they are charming and they are, I think, great ambassadors for the monarchy and particularly for the queen who they adored. But even so, I mean, Eugenie's wedding is just not going to have the same impact. But Andrew wants the full works. The BBC have decided... They're not going to screen this event. There isn't a global audience queuing up to buy the rights. But nonetheless, Prince Andrew wants a big show. And, you know, he's a proud dad. I get that as a father myself. You want the best for your daughter. So he has done a deal with ITV. So ITV, are going to screen this, it had a very similar sort of vibe, except you knew that people probably weren't waking up in the middle of the night in Oregon or Vladivostok or wherever to watch this. But it was a very big deal in Britain. It broke a record for a daytime morning show on ITV. It was watched by so many people. So it was a big deal. And from memory, Natasha, and you'll correct me, but it was pretty star-studded, possibly even more star-studded than Harry and Meghan's wedding, is that right?
2: Yeah, the celebrity guests included the singers Ricky Martin and Robbie Williams, whose daughter was even a bridesmaid, so that's pretty big. I have to say, from watching the footage, because unfortunately I wasn't there, (laughs) (laughs) uh, it looked pretty windy. It wasn't quite such a beautiful day as uh, the day that Harry and Meghan got married.
3: No, it wasn't freezing. One of the touching things, I thought, was that the bride had deliberately had her wedding dress designed to show her scar from an operation.
2: Yeah, she had scoliosis, didn't she? And I think she also invited the surgeon to the wedding. Mm. So it was something that she was proud to show off, you know, and um, I guess say thank you to the surgeon.
3: It sent her a very strong message. I think a lot of people possibly on their wedding day wouldn't necessarily want to show off scars or reminders of the fact that they'd undergone medical treatment. But in her case, it had been a life changing, great thing that had transformed her life. And she wanted to celebrate that. So good luck to her. It was a very happy day. Everybody loved it. The slight difference afterwards, whereas Harry and Meghan had gone off on this epic carriage ride all the way down through Windsor and out into the park and back again, because frankly, there were a quarter of a million people lining the route. Uh, That wasn't the case this time. It was a somewhat reduced round the houses carriage ride. But I, I think everybody just felt look, these York girls, they're great. They put up with a lot. It's her big day. Let's just enjoy it. And actually, the snipers and the usual Twitterati and all the usual social media horrors, I think they kind of stayed at home. My memory is that it wasn't as big as Harry and Meghan, but it was still a happy day. I think the crown, as we have said, would make a great deal of um, Prince Andrew wanting this to be just as big. And from memory, I think at the end of the day, he was a very happy father of the bride.
2: Yeah, I think the crown would recreate some of those meetings, potentially the ones that Prince Andrew had with the Queen trying to persuade her to get on board and potentially even with the TV companies as well, trying to, you know, getting uh, coverage for this wedding. Maybe he would have tried to extend the procession after the ceremony. You can really see them going in for the drama of him really sort of fighting for his daughter.
3: And I think in one regard, people would think, well, you know, he's the father of the bride. Why shouldn't he do that? On the other, I think, as we know from recent history, this was probably the last hurrah for the Duke of York. It was a great day for him. It was a great day for his family. But as we now know, clouds were already starting to gather over his long-term reputation. So we've seen a second son getting married. Uh, We've seen another second son ensuring that his daughter's wedding is a big deal. We're getting a sense of two supporting roles, Duke of Sussex, Duke of York. Both of them reserves, or as Harry would later say, spares, trying to assert their place in the royal spectrum. And that's why I think The Crown could have gone, at this point, could have gone in any direction. I mean, they could have had an entire series, if you like, devoted to the whole breakdown of the the Sussexes and the rest of the royal family. I suspect they probably wouldn't do that because Harry and Meghan have already done their own six-part Netflix series. So, why on earth would The Crown want to sort of <laughs> dramatize their own documentary? So, for our purposes, we think they would skip ahead because... In a sense, this episode is going to be about two weddings and two interviews, and we're going to move forwards to 2021 and possibly the most explosive royal interview, certainly since Diana's Panorama, possibly in living memory.
1: You know, for me, I'm just really relieved and happy to be sitting here talking to you with my wife by my side. Were you silent, or were you silenced? I just want to make it clear to everybody there is no subject that's off-limits. My biggest concern was history repeating itself. You've said some pretty shocking things here. Wait, hold hold up, (laughs) wait a minute.
2: Yeah, it's March 2021. And it's the Oprah Winfrey interview, which I don't think anybody will be forgetting anytime soon. And just a little bit about where Prince Harry and Meghan Markle are at this moment. They have a child, Archie, and they've moved to America. They are no longer working royals, and they're about to give their 85 minute tell all interview.
3: Yeah, I mean, it is a seismic moment. After the wedding, all seem to go okay for a little bit. Gradually, the wheels came off. The Sussexes did their best to follow a a traditional programme of royal engagements. It clearly wasn't working for them. They decided they wanted a new modus vivendi, a new way of royal living. They set off to Canada for a few weeks to gather their thoughts at the end of 2019 and then suddenly announced, this is what we're going to do. We're going to be half royal. We're going to be royal some of the time, not the rest of the time. Harry flew into Britain to thrash all this out with the royal family, and the Queen simply said, it doesn't work like that, sorry. And so Harry went back to Meghan, and they then decided, okay, we're out. It all coincided with the crashing down of the global disaster that was the COVID pandemic. So there you had it, Harry and Meghan on the other side of the Atlantic in California, the rest of the family in lockdown in Britain. As well as all that happening, you've got the health of Prince Philip declining. He's really not well. Despite that, the couple feel that they need to set the record straight. They need to say why it was that they decided to chuck in the glamour and excitement and privilege and history and everything else that goes with being royal and go and forge a new life in California.
2: There were so many big moments from this interview. And the one that I think was the most emotive was Meghan said that she'd been driven to suicidal thoughts during her pregnancy and that the palace had failed to give her help when asked, which, you know, it was she was visibly tearing up describing this experience. And, you know, I think that resonated with a lot of people and got a lot of sympathy. But the Duke of Sussex, Harry, joined her later. And a lot of other allegations were also relayed, including that his father, then Prince Charles, had stopped taking his calls, had cut off his allowance, and that his brother, Prince yes, William, was trapped a in feeble, a royal cage. Sort
3: of yes, man in his thirties, going, "My father's cut off my allowance." Yes, it sounded a little bit privileged.
2: Yes, and I think the most toxic claim was that when the Duchess was pregnant with her son, a member of the royal family had voiced concerns and conversations about how dark his skin might be, which of course has blown up.
3: I think that. That was the most toxic part of the interview. It was certainly arguably the most damaging, the most enduring. And I don't want to stir this up all over again, but just on a basic legal level, the most questionable part of the interview, because you have Megan saying, there was this conversation when I was pregnant. I wasn't there. Harry heard it. He told me. And there was this discussion about the skin color of the baby. That's allegation number one then about 40 minutes later, Harry bounds onto the sofa. He's finally allowed into the interview for sort of part two. This subject reappears and Harry goes, oh, yeah, this was right at the start of our relationship. So he's immediately they, – they haven't got the story squared. She's saying it's when she's pregnant. He's saying it's when they just started going out. Now, if this was happening in the court of law, I mean the judge would just throw it out. And yet this becomes the nub of this debate that goes on and on. And there are no details here, nothing, it's all sort of nebulous, it's all, well, we don't want to say who it was, and we don't want to say this or that. So they just leave this hanging. And I think that's... Arguably, for a family who the Queen is head of state of many other nations apart from Britain, she's head of the Commonwealth, which is an entirely multiracial organization. These are damaging charges and they're not properly made. They're not properly answered. And then in, the, in addition to all that, there's a whole issue of I, – I, didn't they say that they had a private wedding beforehand?
2: Yeah, they said that they had actually got married, yeah, before the ceremony in a secret backyard wedding with the Archbishop of Canterbury, which he did later clarify.
3: Well, he didn't just clarify. He came out and said, that's nonsense. That didn't happen because if he'd done that, he'd have been breaking the law.
2: He said, the legal wedding was on the Saturday. I signed the wedding certificate.
3: Yeah. I mean, you know. You can understand there's a lot of emotion here. They're finally feeling they're unburdening themselves, they're getting their side of the story across. I totally get that. But at the same time, it's just chucking out all sorts of allegations that either turn out to be unsubstantiated or uh, at least questionable and what i find as a journalist absolutely extraordinary was that in the middle of this interview they let slip what in the old days would have been the front page headline the next day but which barely warrants a footnote which is she's pregnant and it's a girl
2: yeah, and as we've discussed, royal baby news is normally absolutely massive, but there was just so much in this interview, yep. and the debate was just so toxic and painful. As you say, it was almost just totally overlooked. You, you wonder if the crown were to cover this, they would maybe use that tactic that they've done previously, where maybe they would just mute the sound and a kind of recreation of it, and just have them oh, talking. That's a good point. Because yes. it, there's so, just so much here. Yeah. Um, the interview was filmed in a private garden. I don't think we know whose garden it was, but it was a friend of. Harry and Meghan's. And, you know, it was really bucolic, idyllic, even with kind of beautifully trimmed grass. So maybe they would have this interview going on here in this beautiful scenery and then flash forward to London where, you know, the Queen and the royal family are sitting there, their brows furrowed, reacting to this news and preparing their statement, which is quite famous in its own right.
3: Yeah, I mean, you're right. There is definitely, I wouldn't say a sense of panic, but just a sense of utter grim surprise in Britain. And, and I, I, I mean, just reflecting on it, you know, there was so much of that interview where I think, you know, they were making valid points. I think it was very sad to hear Megan; you know, She was getting tearful as she recounted how miserable she'd been at times. Those are really important points. And that's something that I think everyone would have had great sympathy with except there was so much else in the mix that on the one hand just as you're starting to think golly you know she's had a a tough time and then something else would come out you think oh hang on Uh, but as you say back in London the crown would have had utter uh, probably one of those moments where we just sort of hear a clock ticking or chiming or something or a corgi snuffling around um, cutting the silence as there is just this oh my goodness what on earth do we do now
2: The next step for the Crown would be to show the statement that the Queen issued. And this is a very rare thing for the Queen to do, to give a statement like this on the record. Maybe the Crown would show her sitting around with a load of courtiers discussing how they were going to respond. Maybe we would have, you know, Prince William chipping in. Anyway, there's a lot of discussion and this statement is issued. And famously, it said, The whole family is saddened to learn the full extent of how challenging the last few years have been for Harry and Meghan. The issues raised, particularly that of race, are concerning. While some recollections may vary, they are taken very seriously and will be addressed by the family privately. Harry, Meghan and Archie will always be much-loved family members. Now, I think everybody remembers that.
3: Everyone remembers three words out of that, yeah. which are, recollections may vary.
2: Exactly.
3: Uh, yes, well, you know, much-loved, etc., etc. It's essentially saying, uh, you may say that, I couldn't possibly comment, it was and remains one of the most quoted lines of the late Elizabeth II. It's right up there with her comment after nine eleven when she said, "Grief is the price we pay for love." It's right up there with the remark she made in her twenty first birthday speech when she said that she would serve us for the whole of my life, whether it be long or short. Recollections may vary. Is simply brilliant.
2: It's very muted language, as you say. That is pretty strong coming from the
3: It room. is. There are three words, by the way, which I think apply perfectly to every episode of The Crown. And whenever you're watching The Crown, they should be up in neon lights and on the subtitles. Recollections may vary because they do. They just do. and And I think that very neatly did shift the weather, if you like, that response from the palace. And After that, I think there was a sense in certainly within the royal household, within the royal family, which is, that okay, these two have now crossed a line. There's no question of sort of let's get even, let's fight back. It's just, right, we have to handle this differently from now on. They complained that after this, that people weren't returning their calls, that they were sort of frozen out. Well, you do something like this and you've been royal, particularly in the case of Harry, this is your family, you know how it works, you come out and do something like this, it's quite hard to come back from this.
2: So, yeah, here we have a prince who's clearly made his choice, and sadly it's not the royal family.
3: Precise timings have never been the crown's strongest point, so we are going to take the liberty of jumping from Oprah to Prince Andrew talking to Emily Maitlis on BBC's Newsnight at the end of 2019 in a similarly seismic conversation.
1: I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me, because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In
0: a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com/people today.
1: Why don't more infant formula companies use organic grass-fed whole milk instead of skim? Why don't more infant formula companies use the latest breast milk science? Why don't more infant formula companies run their own clinical trials?
0: Prince Andrew's attempt to explain his friendship with accused sex trafficker Jeffrey Epstein
1: backfiring. You've been on his private plane? Yes. You've been to stay on his private island? Yes. You've stayed at his home in Palm Beach?
3: Yes.
0: The Duke of York generating a new wave of questions in what has become a sea of speculation surrounding his ties to Epstein.
3: Do I regret the fact that, that, that he has quite obviously conducted himself in a manner unbecoming? Yes.
0: Unbecoming? He was a sex offender?
3: Yeah, I'm sorry, I'm being polite and in the sense that he was a sex offender.
0: Despite ending their friendship, Prince Andrew admitted he stayed with Epstein for four days.
1: We're staying at the house of yes. a convicted sex offender.
3: It was a convenient place to stay.
2: Just to remind ourselves, in 2014, it was alleged by Virginia Giuffre that at the age of 17, she was sex trafficked by Jeffrey Epstein to a number of high-profile individuals, including, allegedly, Prince Andrew, Prince Andrew has always denied the allegations, but in November 2019, he defended himself in a now infamous interview with Emily Maitlis on the BBC's Newsnight.
3: Yes, Natasha, this, as with the Oprah Winfrey interview here, was a royal second son laying down on the table an extraordinary series of revelations, allegations, reflections that you went from one to the next thinking, oh, did I just hear that? Oh, hang on, there's something else. And it essentially revolved around Prince Andrew explaining why he was innocent of the charges that were about to be made in a upcoming Panorama documentary. He already knew the substance of these charges. He wanted to get his side of the story across. And... I think what made it such an extraordinary exchange was the the sort of the lack of self awareness that he felt he was doing himself a favor that this was a useful exercise in clearing the air when it was anything but
2: and unlike the Oprah interview, it was filmed inside the palace, which made it all the more excruciating to watch because it was filmed in this regal environment that we associate with the prestige of the royal family. It was the arrogance that he displayed in this interview. One line that really stuck with me, aside from everything about Peter Express and sweating, was when he described Epstein's behaviour as behaving in a manner unbecoming, which is really quite a quite a way to describe a sex offender. I mean,
3: I think the Crown will want to go through many elements of this interview. You talk about Pizza Express, that's his alibi for not having been at a particular nightclub on a particular day with Virginia Dufresne. You talk about sweating. I mean, that was his remark. She had recalled him sweating in a nightclub. He was making the point that for medical reasons, he was incapable of sweating. These were all sort of points that an open jawed nation lapped up. But there were so many others. There was one point where Emily Maitless asked the Duke, you know, whether he regretted his friendship. And there's a sort of pause and he goes, mm, no, because he taught me so much about finance.
2: Yeah, he said it had been seriously beneficial to his trade work. I mean,
3: you know, the sort of sense of detachment, the sort of tenured lack of awareness was astonishing to behold. As was the fact that when it was all over, the Duke of York actually thought it had been a great success. thought, you know, well, that went well and proceeded to tell his family, including the Queen, that, you know, oh, we have now had a... Pretty, I think I've made a pretty good fist of this.
2: Yeah, you could imagine in this imagined episode of The Crown, there would be a parallel to the Oprah Winfrey interview. Again, the royal family sitting around hearing about this, potentially watching it in horror at the contents of this interview.
3: Well, Natasha, we possibly don't want to dwell too much on the details of this because any day now, the public are going to see at least one, if not two, if not possibly three separate dramatizations of this actual interview. And I think maybe we ought to come back when that's happened and we can possibly (laughs) have a look at those. But I think it's useful to reflect on what happened next because in next to no time, and I think the Crown would have an awful lot of fun with this, you, you could almost hear the sort of the music switching from major to minor as the confident, upbeat Duke of York thinks, well, that's seen off my critics as suddenly the sort of sound of an enormous weight clattering down a lift shaft and is about to go boom at the bottom because it's all about to go horribly wrong. Within days, his entire royal existence, his public life, it's all over because the Queen is about to lean on him, isn't she? And say, I'm really sorry. And this must have grieved her so much. She adored Andrew. But even the Queen has to put the institution before the individual. And she had to tell him, you're out.
2: Yeah. And he, of course, presented this as his own decision, saying that he had asked the Queen for permission to step back from royal duties. But, of course, oh, everybody God. knew that that's not how it happened.
3: Again, you know, just typifying how naive. Anyway, yes, we were expected to believe that he had asked the Queen for permission to step back from public life. No sooner had he asked for this permission than he uh, was preparing to go off on another official trip. To Bahrain a few days later. So there you have. The palace has made this announcement. The Duke of York will now step back from public life. Subtext, folks, he's out. And then suddenly he's announcing that he's still going ahead with a trip in connection with his pitch at the palace initiative, which in its day was a very popular and successful.
2: It was kind of like Dragon's Den.
3: It was a bit like Dragon's Den. And he was going to fulfill a prearranged engagement with that organization in Bahrain. And I remember we in the media just thought, are you serious? And what had transpired was, once again, the Duke had done what the Duke often did, which was when faced with bad news, would then go round to have tea with the Queen and sort of unravel things and say, look, actually, I think, you know, I should be allowed to do this or that. And the poor Queen would often find herself sort of in a corner on this. What was interesting, I think, about the whole... Newsnight saga was this was a moment where the Prince of Wales very firmly came in alongside the Queen and the rest of the royal household to say, no, look, this can't go on. So the Prince of Wales at this point was actually on a tour of New Zealand, I seem to recall. And it was nighttime in New Zealand when the Duke of York let it be known that he was still going to press ahead with this trip to Bahrain and, you know, things are going to get back to normal. At which point, suddenly, it was breakfast time in New Zealand. Clearly, the Prince of Wales got up, heard that the Duke of York was already backtracking on this arrangement. And all of a sudden, things changed. No, the trip to Bahrain was off. That's it. And really, since then, the Duke of York has been in this sort of internal exile. He would love to return to public life, but you can only be in public life if the public want to see you which they don't. He is maintaining his innocence. Obviously, he is innocent until proved guilty. And so he's caught in this admittedly sort of nightmarish situation where there are still legal accusations that continue to unfold. More court papers keep being filed in the US on this case. Jeffrey Epstein is found dead in his prison cell. His ex-girlfriend, Ghislaine Maxwell, is locked up in another prison cell This story is sort of going nowhere. It's just on a sort of ever increasingly turgid and sordid loop. And until there's some form of closure, I don't know what that might be. I'm afraid that the Duke of York is just doomed to remain on the fringes of royal public national life. And this, of course, did weigh very heavily on the mind of the queen in her later years. And after her death, King Charles has still made sure to keep his brother in the royal loop at family events. You know, he's still part of the family. But at the same time, he cannot resume any sort of public activity, certainly not on behalf of the monarchy, uh, because the public uh, simply don't want to see him.
2: So we've had two interviews and now two male members of the royal family who are no longer working
3: royals. Yeah, I think both these interviews marked a watershed uh, for the two number two sons who gave them. I think one point that the crown would probably emphasize in this episode would be the Queen's innate sympathy with those who are born in second place. We have touched on this before. The burden of being the spare. Um, And I do think the Queen had that innate sympathy. She understood why her sister, Princess Margaret, was often very unhappy because of her lot as the runner-up. It's why she was always very sympathetic to Andrew. It's why she was always very sympathetic to Harry. And let's not forget, she herself was the daughter of a second son. George VI was not born to be king. And so running through, I think, this episode would be the Queen's tristesse and general sense of understanding with the difficulties facing both Harry and Andrew in one regard – But on the other hand, she, in both cases, she comes down on the side of the institution because she has to. So at the end of this episode, we have seen two similar, though in their own way very different, weddings. Um, We've seen the impact of two extraordinary, I would say historic interviews. Where the two interviews, are very different is in the reaction. In the case of Meghan and Harry's interview with Oprah Winfrey, national, American, global opinion is divided. Many people thinking that the royals are the bad guys. Many people thinking Harry and Meghan are the bad guys. In the case of Prince Andrew's interview, it's pretty much unanimous. This is an extraordinary own goal. It's a really dumb piece of self-justification which hasn't worked. And it's also shows a a complete lack of awareness in that there's no note, there's no scintilla of sympathy with Epstein's victims. It's all about the Duke saying nothing to worry about here, move on. And I'm afraid the world sees it very differently. Where these two interviews do, and I think this is something the Crown really will be cranking up at this point, where they absolutely come together as they are both deeply upsetting for the Queen. We still haven't discussed who might be playing the Queen in this episode, but whoever it is, I think she would find this whole experience watching uh, a, a son make an absolute Not just a fool but a travesty of himself on one interview watching a grandson and his wife effectively heaping opprobrium on the monarchy, on the family. In, In the twilight years of her life, this would have been very upsetting for the Queen and I'm quite sure the Crown would have made a big deal of that.
2: So before we wrap up this episode... We want to touch on something that we had a couple of questions about, which is who would be the actors in our imagined series of The Crown? So it seems only fair to kick off with the Queen. I know who I'm imagining. Who would you like to play our imaginary Queen in series seven of The Crown?
3: Well, this is such a great parlor game, isn't it, Natasha? And and as you say, yes, a number of our listeners have asked us in the course of these special episodes, come on then, who's your choice? Who would you put in these plum roles? And I'm going to say that for the queen in her later years, it needs someone of immense calibre. Someone who's met her, I think, would be an advantage and someone who's as familiar as she is. So I'm going to go for Judy Dench.
2: Well, I like your thinking, Robert, but for my generation, I think we already associate her with her untimely death in James Bond. So I'm going to go with someone else who's equally prestigious. And that's Helen Mirren, who has, of course, already played the Queen. So she's very well qualified.
3: I think she won an Oscar, didn't she?
2: Exactly. So she'd be absolutely perfect. Now, the next big question is who would play Prince Harry?
3: Well, that's a tricky one. Natasha, I'm not a huge um, showbiz expert like you, but I'm going to go for like Harry, a sort of Old Etonian, versatile actor who can play pretty much whatever he wants whenever he's required to. I'm going to go for Eddie Redmayne and I'll stick him in a ginger wig.
2: I think that's a good choice. He's definitely got the accent. And actually, we see him quite a lot around the office in Kensington. So I think he could very easily channel himself into that role. Uh, But I do have an alternative suggestion, which is Rupert Grint, of course, known for playing another feisty ginger in Harry Potter. So I think he could also slot into that role. Third and final question is who would play Prince Andrew?
3: I'm going to go for Hugh Grant. He's of a similar age to the Duke of York. He has... Uh, played uh, the posh baddie in uh, any number of dramas, including Jeremy Thorpe in A Very English Scandal, I think he'd uh, slot very happily into that role.
2: It's a very good suggestion again, but I have an alternative, which is Michael Sheen, who, Uh. of course, is going to play Prince Andrew. He's probably there. I think they're filming it right now in the Amazon version of their dramatisation of the Newsnight interview. So he's already been cast, so he's clearly qualified. So thanks so much for joining us for this special episode of The Crown, Fact or Fiction. We're really keen to hear from you which episodes you would like us to revisit in our future episodes. It can be any episode between Series 1 and Series 5 of The Crown. So please get in touch. The details of how to do that are in our show notes.
3: Yes, thank you for listening. And as Natasha says, do please nominate one or two episodes that you would like us to chew over in the weeks ahead. But in the meantime... Thank you for joining us on our special episode of The Crown, Fact or Fiction. Goodbye. Goodbye.
1: Why don't more infant formula companies use organic, grass-fed whole milk instead of skim? Why don't more infant formula companies use the latest breast milk science?
3: Our hit series Everything I Know About Me is back for a brand new season, and this time our guest needs
1: no introduction. But here's one anyway. Hi, I'm Gemma Collins, and this is everything I know about me. If you
3: think you know all about Gemma Collins, think again, because this is the GC as you've never heard her before. It's been exhausting. Unashamed. And I was really heartbroken because I was pregnant and he was having an affair. Unfiltered. I have
2: had an operation as well years ago. I have a designer vagina. Yeah,
1: baby.
3: I don't have camel toe. Unbelievable.
2: And then they advised me, you need to have a termination. And, uh, yeah, I remember that being
1: really stressful.
3: Everything I Know About Me with Gemma Collins is out this Thursday, wherever you get your podcasts.